0: Uh, We're in the Gospel of John, but this morning our launch text is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We do expository preaching where we take a book of the Bible and we go through it a verse at a time. We try to use the Bible to interpret the Bible to the best of my abilities. That way uh, God gets to pick the topics. We just get to go through and see what he has for us. But I'm going to start with 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22. 1 Corinthians 1. 22 says, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It kind of gets down to the heart of the matter. The Jews are looking for a sign, something miraculous for them to be convinced. You know, the Greeks or the Gentiles are looking after wisdom, some kind of insight, some special knowledge that we've given unto them. But we're preaching unto them Christ, that he came down he died on the cross, that he was buried and rose again the third day, paying for our sin debt. Foolishness to the Greek, stumbling block to the Jews. How is this? It hinders them, and that's usually the two responses that we get. But he's the answer, right? He's the answer to all these. He's the main focus, the main point in life. He is the answer. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the answer. He is The way to have everlasting life is through the death and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his burial and his resurrection on the third day. And with that as just kind of a seed planted in our mind, let's turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. So we've just been at this since the first of the year. So yes, we are slow as we go through. And John chapter 3 might be a while. This is a much celebrated chapter and there's a lot going on in it. And it's overwhelming. I was really stuck even this morning starting on it. Like, where do you start? You know, how do you go? And it's like trying to look at it as an overall. And there's the things that I look forward to bringing out and like trying to lay down groundwork and the foundation work, too. This is the thousandth chapter in the Bible. At least that's what they tell me. I didn't count. But that's what the scholars say. And so I just kind of, that's kind of interesting, throw that out there and do something with it. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, did say, if you were asked to read a chapter of the Bible to a dying man, we'd probably reach for this gospel and we'd probably reach to this chapter and he also says so whatever is good for a dying man is good for us because we are all dying men and it gives us some import to this this chapter chapter 3 Uh, It contains probably the most quoted evangelistic verse. If you're going to witness to somebody at some point in time, you're going to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? John 3.16. You see it uh, with a rainbow-haired guy standing in the end zone at football games. You know, he's usually got some t-shirt on at an NBA game. There's usually some place where somebody holding up some sign that says John 3.16. And chances are, if you're a Christian and then you're in the workplace, you've had some lost person in your company, they come up to you and say, what's that about? Is that, is that a Christian thing? Because uh, I've had that where people are like, they don't even know what that means, John three sixteen. What is it? Is that the score? And it's like, no, this is a Bible verse. It's a reference that we take them to. And, and so where that man might not be able to uh, stand up and witness, he gives opportunity for all of us. And so I appreciate those ministries that go out and, and just get Bible verses in front of people uh, because his word does not return void, right? John 3, I think just for... A matter of context that I'm going to read down through verse 21. So we'll start at the beginning, kind of read through it. So we all kind of have some of the same setting in our mind. And then we'll go back and start at verse 1 and kind of work our way down. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knoweth not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is of heaven. because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light cometh into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they may be wrought in God. We'll stop right there. So we've seen from John... There's usually more going on than meets the eye. You know, there's the text and there's the things that are happening, but there's also some other subtle things, why he's picked what he's picked and put it in there. And I think we'll see some of that eventually as we go through this, maybe not direct revelation about that this morning, but this is an important chapter. And so I suspect that we're going to see things like that. We're going to see some of those uh, nuanced layers that are laid down in there. The first thing I want to look at is the context. I think the context is always important. It means we need to remember that we put in the verses and the chapter division. John didn't write this, and chapter 2, you know, and then he goes on where, you know, we're used to modern-day writing where you have chapter breaks that authors have constructed it that way. You know, it's like this is the end point, and now we might change scene, you know, and we might even change characters and go to a different area. And so with that, it brings a bias, you know, as we read the text that kind of lumps us into, well, I can't go past chapter three. You know, this is all locked in here, and we kind of limit ourselves to that. And so it does come with some great, I guess, uh, exercise to try to pull ourselves outside of that trap to see that more than it is. Now, I think the, the people who put the chapter marks in here have done a great job, and I think the majority of the time, they're spot on. Just a few places where it's like, ah, you might move that up a verse or two, and it'd help us with some context. And I think this is one of those areas. And I guess I was thinking, well, if John would have probably put this into chapters, it would probably be divisible by seven. And it does have 21 chapters, which is divisible by seven. So maybe John did. No, <laughs> but it is one of those things. But John is one who puts a lot of sevens in there, you know, a lot of Uh, And we will see some of that this morning. But with that, let's go back to uh, chapter 2, verse 23. So where we ended last week, quickly, and I didn't dwell on this much. I'm leaving it here for now. So uh, John chapter 2, verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles, which he did. And Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And we talked about that, that man's heart was evil, and that these were easily converted by a miracle, or be easily swayed by something else, you know, would make them not believe. But if we move that chapter break, it kinda of changes it up a little bit. Verse twenty three says uh, of chapter two now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles, which he did. And we even commented on that, that you know, John tells us at the end of the book that if I wrote down everything that Jesus did, you know, the world couldn't contain the books, you know, so we can kind of speculate about it. what all did he do, you know, what all happened while he was there, what miracles did he perform, you know, so he did do miracles, and it did catch people's attention, and it, it did bring him to the forefront of their mind, he starts to get a name in the, all of Jerusalem about this miracle worker. Uh, Verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. See, this is in the context of that. He's talking about all these miracles, the things that were going on. matter of fact, some translation says, now there was a man. You know, so he's talking about these that were miracle workers, or the ones that saw the miracles and were believing that Jesus wouldn't put much stock in them, you know, because they were kind of fly by night in the rush of the moment, the same ones who cried crucify later. But this continues on to, now there was a man of a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. He's even talking in the same context, right? Talking about the miracles, the same context that chapter 2 ends with. He says, only someone from God can do these miracles that we are seeing, so it must be some pretty spectacular miracles that we're seeing him perform, even though they're not recorded for us. Now Nicodemus is a character that is going to come up through the Gospel of John, and he's a good character. I like Nicodemus, Nicodemus means conqueror or the ruler over the ruler over the people that 's just the definition of his name. Matter of fact, we kind of get a hint of that in Revelation chapter 2, verses like 6 and verse 15. It talks about the Nicolaitans, and we've talked about that. I forget what church it was. I forgot to put it my notes, but it's, it's one of the churches where he has, you know, I have this odd against you, but one is that you don't like the Nicolaitans, and I don't either. The Nicolaitans kind of sounds like Nicodemus. You kind of get the same thing. It means ruler over the people, ruler over the laity, Nicolaitans, you know, those who rule over the laity. It also means the destruction of the people. It's a reference from, from time before Catholics to, to kind of reference Catholics that have laity and those are the ruling class over them and the bondage that it puts to them that you must come through us and and he says this this thing that I hate you know we have access to the father he's done away with the priest craft you know we don't have priests anymore you can boldly go to the throne of grace the veil of partition has been torn down you know and so he sees this stumbling block put back in there and it frustrates him and so just a little word analogy there, you know, from the Nicolaitans and the Nicodemus, you know, that he was a ruler of the people. His family was that way. Matter of fact, he came from a very wealthy family. They say that he was one of the top four wealthy people in Israel. That's saying something. I doubt any of us are here the top four wealthy people in Johnson County, even let alone Indiana or the country. And we can, matter of fact, in the news, you know, since a lot of the COVID stuff locked it all down, Put the squelch on the mom and pop shops. uh, Drove Amazon up. Jeff Bezos comes up and he makes more money in a day than a lot. They said that you could make. I saw one of the statistics. It was like, if you made so much money every day from the time of Christ to now, you still wouldn't make as much money as Jeff Bezos does in a day. And it's like... That's ridiculous. And then Elon Musk passes him and he becomes the wealthiest man. And they said unto him, they're like, hey, uh, Elon, you just became the wealthiest man. He goes, oh yeah? Back to work. Yep. <laughs> so I, was guy, well, I guess that's probably why he's wealthy. You know, back at it, starting some other business. You know, flamethrowers, tunnelers, self-driving cars, rocket ship. Yep. give the guy, he's a worker. I'll give him that. And then we have Bill Gates. We think about these people. Nicodemus is in that class. He is wealthy. He is rich. He is one that people know. He is one who uh, they look to. And John... Chapter 3 and verse 10, he calls him the master. He's a master of Israel. Uh, actually means the teacher. You, you are the, you're the teacher of Israel, the teacher. He sees them as the, the predominant teacher that when people want an answer or they're looking for instruction, they turn to Nicodemus. What does Nicodemus say? You know, he, he's kind of the spokesman or the, the guy you would go to. I wouldn't say the Pope. Uh, some people call John MacArthur the Pope of Evangelicalism. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't like that terminology either. But this is a guy we can trust for an answer. You know, they, they would go to Nicodemus. He has power and influence. He's one they look to to understand and rightly divide the law and to be able to tell it to him. And so he's a personality, but he's also a real person. You know, this isn't just a name that is made up for the story's sake. He's a real person. I believe he becomes a believer. And we'll see that by the time we get through the end of the Gospel of John. But I also think he's a representative, and I think that's his role here. One, he's representing Israel. He's representing the Pharisees. He's one of them, a master. He's a teacher. He represents the teaching of the Pharisees. And so he also represents the law, because that's what the Pharisees were known for, their law-keeping. And so he's here representing all that. So yes, he is there probably as an individual, but as this individual who is representing all these other people. And so this is early in Christ's ministry, right? He's just watered a wine, turned over the tables of the temple, done some miracles, Pharisees are right to him, talking to him. Pharisees. Pharisees, one of the groups that arisen during Christ's day, that they were uh, literalists in the sense that they took the Bible at its at what it said and believed it. And so I identify a lot with them. They were fundamental. You know, the, the fundamentalists, we would call them that and kind of put them in a similar camp as us. They were professional law keepers. I mean, this was their job, was to go out and try to fulfill the law, to keep the law. You know, that's why... They didn't go to work every day. You know, their work was, now nah, I'm not going to violate the law. Now I'm going to do the things that are contained in the law. I'm only going to walk so far, I'm going to count all my steps. I'm only going to do this. I'm going to offer this. Oh, I ate some mint. I'm going to give a pinch of mint. tie the tenth of the meal, all these down to these jot and tittle, all these little bitty things. You know, Jesus will have a lot to do with the Pharisees throughout all this and all their show that they're putting on. Lawkeepers, professional lawkeepers. They did believe in the supernatural. They believed in angels, they believed in the resurrection, you know, they were looking forward to that. And that separated them out from the Sadducees, which is the other political group, which has been more of the the liberal group of their time. It would be more of uh, probably your Methodist, Presbyterian, you know, kind of bent in that way to not just throw them into a category, but more along that way. They did not believe in the supernatural, they did not believe in angels, they did not believe in the resurrection. And That's how you can always remember the two groups. They did not believe in the resurrection. That's what made them sad. You see, you know, so <laughs> there's no hope. There's no hope for them. So they were the sad you It's Kind of like slide night. Slide night. You know, <laughs> those little word games. The sad you sees because they were sad because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why I think separates them. And we see because of uh, the Pharisees respect of the Bible and the respect of the word, and that they did go to the word. the first believers were Pharisees you know it was a lot of the pharisaical teachers and all that that came to faith in Jesus Christ and act when they come around those who studied the word and knew it and finally had their eyes open that they saw it and they ran to it we don't have any report of any Sadducees ever coming to faith in Jesus Christ and so I think that kind of helps give us a little hint on how we should interpret the scriptures and a little bit more of I would say a plain view other than just literal but a plain view but in sight of with the insights of Jesus Christ for sure and so he's here and he's here because of the miracles Look at verse 1 again, chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And so in case we didn't look at the definition, it even tells us that he's a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, which is a teacher, and it's like there's three different realms of teacher. He kind of uses the middle one, So, but he is giving him, acknowledging him and his authority. Rabbi, we know that thou art teacher, come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Is he right? Can only someone sent from God do miracles? Look at John chapter 5. John 5, verse 43. Jesus says, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye shall receive. What's he talking about here? He's talking about... The one who's going to come that's all full of pride and arrogance. And the one that the world's going to turn to and say, you're the Messiah, we follow in after you. What you say, we will do it. It's the beast, right? If you look at Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 24. Matthew 24, verse 24 says, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect, Behold, I have told you before, He says that theres going to come those in the last days in their own name who are going to do great signs and wonders. Wonders there means miracles. Great signs and miracles will perform literal miracles. And he says they are deceivers. They are lying signs. They are lying wonders. These are meant to pull you away from God. Look at second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second Thessalonians chapter two verse seven says, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, and I believe this is the church, and filled with the Holy Spirit and once the church is raptured out of here and the Spirit and the church is taken out of the way we are the restrainers, we are the ones that are saying that's not right, you don't do that, and we're the ones that make a big fuss, and so they deplatform you and they take you off the internet and they'll remove your Twitter and they'll put these things down or they'll censor you and you're in Twitter jail now and, and, or whatever, it is. You'll, you're not allowed to do that you can't say it on Facebook, Yeah, you know, we banish that we take away that hashtag, you're not allowed finally, this nuisance of the church will be taken out of the way one day the rapture of the church and then it says verse 8 and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved and for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. He says, it's going to be a curse on the world. There's going to be one coming who with lying, signs, and wonders who will perform them, that will deceive them, and God says, I'll even give it over to them. Fine, deceive them. They rejected me. They rejected my son. I'll make you believe the lie. Praise be that we won't be here. We don't have to face all that. And Jesus already told us that if it were possible, uh, that we would be deceived. But we know the truth, so we won't. Look at Revelation 13. Revelation 13 talks about the second person. There's the beast. And the beast has a helper called the false prophet. And that's what he talks about here in Revelation 13, verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, but he spake as a dragon. So he puts on the personification of being a lamb, like he's a savior. Or he's this soft and gentle thing, but he's really a dragon. He's really uh, sheep and wolf clothing. This is the guy. Verse 12, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and he causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Uh, that's a key point. Verse 13, and he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven. Of the earth and the sight of men. He deceived them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying unto them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image of the beast that had the wound by the sword and did live. That's a false resurrection, verse 15. And he had the power to give life unto the image of the beast. And the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast, that they should be killed. And he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive the mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell or save. They had that mark, or in the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. Again, the one who institutes this mark system to where you can't buy or sell. You're not allowed to participate in society unless you have it. Boy, it's so foreign to us. Who can imagine a day and an age where you'd all have to conform to some certain thing or you can't participate in the world system? <laughs> a little too close to home, isn't it? Uh, a little frog in the pot here. We're seeing that turned up. Is all the things that we're going through right now, is it the mark? No. Is there things pointing towards the mark? Conditioning us for the mark? Ah, yeah, there's no doubt about it. But he says he's going to back it up with lying signs and wonders. And I'm really nervous. You know, I have an insider in the healthcare industry, wife, uh, who talks about people that say, like, getting their shots like it's like Christmas. It's like the best day of my life. I've got this. What do we put our faith and hope in? You know, what are we trusting in? I'm not a doctor. Well, I have the same degree as Bill Gates. But I would say, I don't know. I have my own opinions about that. I'm not going to trust them now. But man, we are being forced and channeled into an area that I don't like. But here it says, "There's lying signs and wonders, even with the false resurrection, you know, verse 14, they had the deadly wound by the sword, and he did live, and he does these, makes fire come down. So miracles attract attention. Miracles get people's attention, that is for sure. Like, whoa, look at that. I mean, I like magicians for seeing what they do. You know, it's, uh, uh, David Blaine does stuff. You're like, wow, this guy's weird. You know, what all is he doing? You know, and then you listen to him talking, like, I don't much like that guy outside of doing the trick. But uh, they get your attention. And the Jews seek after a sign. We know that. They're already seeing this, and they're coming to him, and we already saw in chapter 2, they're like, you flipped over all these tables, what sign, by what power, and what sign are you doing these things? You know, so they're already asking for a sign, then he goes and does all these miracles, and now we have the leader of the Pharisees coming, you must be from God because you do this, and Jesus isn't going to let him off that easy, you know, because signs can point to the wrong guy, lying signs and wonders, we just looked at a slew of verses about it, so the Jews seek after that. They're wanting something clear and that, that they could see. They're, they're like substantial. Oh, that's obvious. You know, I'm, I saw it with my own eyes. I, I must believe it. So how do you tell the difference between the good and the bad? A miracle isn't it. You can't tell the saints from Satan. It's the message. What message does the one doing the miracles have? Is it consistent with scripture? Or is it something foreign and something different? You know, which is it? Signs draw a crowd. That's for sure. Then you can preach a message. If you could do something, even when we've gone downtown and preached on the street, like with our missionaries from open-air campaigners, Richard Burley, they you know, will we'll do a couple of little magic trips, tear up a newspaper and bring it back out, you know, do a couple other things, you know, and to draw that crowd in, and then we preach the gospel. It's fair. It's entertaining. It brings it. You get that message to so give them clear doctrine. That's what Jesus is going to do. I guess you can decide who they are by what they say. That's what we're supposed to do, right? The Bible tells us that doctrine divides. That's why the Bible is good for doctrine. You know, it's good for, for sound doctrine, the Bible tells us. Miracles might unite, but what's the message? What message are they sending? What message are they preaching? The beast is worship the beast. Worship him. Worship the guy who has all the answers for the world. Christian miracles are like pointing to Christ, pointing to him, pointing to God the Father. You know, and so we have to be able to discern the message from that method there. So does it fit Scripture Does it draw us closer to God? Does it point us to the Savior? And so we need to be on guard because we are in these days where we're going to see these lines, signs and wonders come forth. I was watching something this week called Portal Technology that has a 3D hologram of a person in real time. And I swear the guy in the hologram looked like a sharper representation of the guy who's standing next to it who's the real guy. I'm like, ah, I think I'd believe that one a little bit more. And they're talking about, well, now we all have to social distance. Now we have this 3D technology. I'm thinking Image of the Beast kind of thing. It's like, is this something else they're going to use? Uh, putting it on there. So we are in these days where we're seeing these things that's coming boom, 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 boom all the time. So we need to have our eyes open in discernment. And here we have Nicodemus helping us out saying, let's just not be buying any miracle. Let's make sure we look at the message that goes along with it. Is it pointing to Christ or is it pointing away from Christ? So Jesus says something unexpected to him, verse 3. Jesus answers and said unto him, John chapter 3, verse 3, Verily, verily, and that's a double emphasis, truly, truly. Uh, anybody want to take a guess how many times the verily, verily is in the gospel of John? Seven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much the, always the Bible answer. It's seven. Yeah, so seven times. So here, here we have, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's like, uh, that's not the message I thought that you were going to give me. Because see, the Jews thought they got in by birthright. Especially that this time and this point in time, they thought it was because they were the son of Abraham that they were guaranteed entrance into heaven. I remember wrestling with that as a young kid. And I remember thinking, well, I wish I was born a Jew. I wouldn't have to worry about this. I'm being taught from Scripture. no. That that's not a guarantee for anybody. They are the chosen people to deliver the message that the Messiah came through. And they gave us the Bible, but you have to repent and trust in Jesus Christ individually. It doesn't matter what nation you're born in. Jesus says, no, it's not just because you're the son of Abraham. No, that birth's no good. You have to be born again. You need a different birth. You need a different heritage. We have to think about who's standing here. This is Nicodemus, wealthy Jewish leader. The teacher of the Pharisees, one whose full-time job was to keep the law, one whose job was to he had access to scriptures. He's not like you and I back then where we all have a copy of the Bible and several different copies and different translations and commentaries. You know, scrolls were expensive. He had access to it all the time to be able to read it. This professional law keeper all day long trying to do this. And he had the means to be able to do that. If I would live back then and I wanted to be a professional law keeper, I'd be like, what? I also have to go to work. <laughs> I have to make a living. And I have to walk the qualified steps for today. And what if I work overtime and it goes past sundown and what if all this and my family you know all these different nuances that they had to work with? Cuz Paul tells us the law wasn't there to save them. The law was there to be a schoolmaster to show them that it can't save them, to point them to Jesus Christ. You know, it's the mirror that shows us our own filthiness because we're liars and we're thieves and we're adulterous at heart and We do break the Sabbath day, and we do break the laws, and we don't put God first. And it shows us our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. It's not something that gets us saved. It shows us that we need saving. And so that's why it's the schoolmaster. But these guys would do it all day long and think that they were keeping it. So honestly, he's kind of standing there as the person that would think that he had the least need in all of Israel. And Jesus says, all your life's work, that's nothing. You need to start over. You need to be a baby. You need to be born again. You need to have a new life. Verse 4, Nicodemus, saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into the second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is one of, shockingly, seven times in the Gospel of John where Jesus' sayings are misunderstood. In chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple, in three days I'll build it up. And they thought he meant the building. They misunderstood him. Here we have it, you know, you must be born again. How? I gotta go my mom again and be born again. There's seven times in the Gospel of John where Jesus' teachings are misunderstood. And so maybe we get to the seventh one, we'll pull something out of that. But this is the second of seven, where his teachings are misunderstood. Verse 5. Jesus said, Verily, fairly, that's the second time of seven, of verily, 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 verily I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that you say unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, art thou a master in Israel, and you knowest not these things? Jesus was holding him accountable. He says that you're the teacher of Israel. You're the one that claims to know the word. You know, you know the law. And you don't know this, and so he's pretty holding him tight to it. But I guess it's probably tighter because, I guess, who's much as given, much as accountable, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, because this is something that is in the Old Testament. And he holds him to. So hold your spot here. And let's look at Ezekiel 36. And I've, and I've wondered, I don't know how old Nicodemus is, but for him to be a teacher... I've been putting him as older, an elder statesman to be in that kind of position. And I wondered if he wasn't one of the ones that 12-year-old Jesus was talking with at the temple, you know, that they were astounded by. Now, here he is being astounded by him yet again. You know, if there wasn't a feeling of uh, familiarity here. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, sorry. Ezekiel 36, verse 25 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, And you shall be clean from all your filthiness. And from your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. Verse 28. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. You need to be born again, basically. You need a new heart. You need to start over. You need to take away your old heart of flesh, like those old stony water pots in chapter 2, and you need to have a miracle performed that gives you a new heart. He never heals a heart in Scripture anywhere. He always gives a new one. He always takes away the old one and gives you a new one. You either die to it and He makes you alive again. They thought they had it. The Jews of the time, they thought that they were in the place of all these things that were already there. They thought because they had returned from exile, that they were reassembled as a Jewish nation, that they had returned and God has put his spirit back in them again. They thought because there was the Pharisee group that studied the law and were keeping all these things, that their group and their understanding was all there, they thought the only element that was missing for all these things to be complete and the land to be opened up and all the blessings to come was for Messiah to come and establish the kingdom. And so they were looking for him with expectation that all this would be satisfied and fulfilled because everything was back. The Jews are back. You know, the law was back. We just need the Messiah back. And we live in a day when the Jews are back when the law is alive, but we're waiting for Messiah to come. You know, we're waiting for him to be here. Of course, they're missing him. They're looking for him to come the first time. We're looking for his return. But Messiah is there and talking to him and teaching the teacher. And he's saying, the spirit must give you a new heart. You have to be born again, new life. Born over, born again. Some have born again, if we go back to John 3. Some versions might have born again interpreted born of the spirit. You have to be born of the spirit, or born above. You have to be born from above. It's a heavenly birth. It's not some earthly birth, it's a heavenly birth. And the main point is that you can't do it. You can't do it. So John uh, chapter 3, verse 5. Verily, verily I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The water. There's a lot of people that debate on what this is, you know, what that can mean. I kind of fall into the camp that's natural birth. Water break, the baby's born, and then there's the birth that is made by the Spirit. And I think that he's juxtaposing these two against one another because he's trying to get this point across unto him. Because he comes out of a system as a Pharisee, as that he has to do the law. I have to keep the law. I have to watch the law. It's all up to him. It's a do-do-do religion. Ours is a done religion. Jesus Christ has done it for us. It is something that he gives us. It's a miracle that transforms us from death into life, that takes us as a sinner and changes us to a saint. It's nothing that I do. I'm Lazarus, four dead in the grave, stinking. You know, and it takes Jesus Christ to call my name and transform me into a new creature born alive again unto him. So think about it. When I was born the first time, I didn't do anything. (laughs) My mom did all the work. It It was all on her. It was her pain, her suffering, her grief, the anguish that she went through. But she forgot the instant I was born. But she did it all. That's why we love our mothers, right? They bring us into this world. And the Spirit, I was born by the Spirit. I didn't do anything. I cried out for Jesus to save me, and he did all the work. He did all the suffering. He died on the cross. He paid for my sin. He took all the punishment that I should have suffered in hell for all eternity, and he satisfied it on the cross that day so that he could take me and declare me a saint. He's juxtaposing them. Just like your mom did everything to have you born. You did nothing. Same way when the Spirit does it. He goes, it's not you doing anything. It's not you keeping the law. It's not you earning it. It's not what you give. It's not what you do. It's what I have done. And the Spirit will transform you and give you new life. And the teacher of Israel is like, (laughs) these are new things. His world is flipped upside down. Get used to different here. His whole world. We find that Paul, you know, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he called himself, and he says, he finally had to get to the point where he says, I count all my works as a Pharisee, but dung. He says, I count them all as manure, something I don't want to step in. And he had to die to all that and take this new life through the birth of the Spirit and start afresh. Now, every time John refers to Nicodemus, he, he does so the same way. Verse 2 says, "Taking of to Nicodemus, says, the same that came to Jesus by night. In chapter 7, verse 50, and uh, chapter 19, verse 37 or 39, around there, he says the same thing. Every time he introduces Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night. And a lot of people are like, well, maybe he came at night because that's when they met. It's in the Middle East. You know, it's cooler at night. You, know, you want to sit around in your black Pharisee robes and sweat in front of somebody when you're talking to them. So you do it at night. It's a little bit cooler, maybe. Uh, you come at night because that's when Jesus isn't thronged by crowds. You, know, you have a little more private audience. Some say maybe he's a coward and didn't want everybody to see that he's talking to Jesus. I don't think that's why John mentions any of it. I think he's playing with the words that he's already been using. Remember, John's the one who wrote the book of Revelation. He's the one who uses signs and symbols. He's the one that's been using seven throughout. We're going to find seven miracles, seven teachings, seven discourses, uh, seven misunderstood sayings, you know, seven verily, verily. There's a lot of sevens that are nuanced in the book of John, just like they're in Revelation, only thing not as obvious because he's kind of like, all right, students, time to grow up, put your big point pants on and, and look for these a little bit harder than verses have it laid out seven, seven, seven. So as we're looking through here, he's also playing with the words, drawing us into that. And again, no chapter division, so as far as he knows, we're reading us all in one setting from chapter 1. I think that he's saying he's in the dark. That you're in the law, and you're blind. You're in the dark. He came to him in the dark. All he had was what he thought he had in the Pharisaical way, and he's in the dark, the one who came to him by night. you know, He couldn't see. He's blind. How many times does the Bible use that? As the blind leading the blind, they lead them to the ditch. You know, we have to shine the light of the gospel in their blind eyes. I once was blind, but now I see. And we have all these things that are used here. And he's saying the same reference to him. He's in the, he's in the dark. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 5. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. That's Jesus right there, right? The light is coming to the darkness, coming to the world. Here we have this Pharisee of Pharisees. He represents the people, represents the Pharisees, represents Jews, represents the world, in a sense. Coming there and standing there, and he's speaking with the light of the world, and he comprehends him not, because he's in the dark. He doesn't see him. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own and his own received him not. Here he is, the Jewish Messiah, and he's talking to the master of Israel who studies the law professionally. And he's standing right here and he's trying to teach him. And he's like, I don't understand. He didn't comprehend him because he's dark. He's in the dark and he needs to be brought into the light. He needs the miracle, the transforming work of the spirit. We need to be that way. At some point in time during Nicodemus' life, the light switch goes on. (laughs) He sees him for who he is. There's a time where he's no longer cowering in fear because of his power and his prestige and his position. That he surrenders to the point where he repents and trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior. At a very important time, too. I think it's one of the things that I think endears me to Nicodemus. He might have been afraid to walk with him because he might have lost his money and his power. And history does show that he did lose his money and his power because he came to Christ. But he came in an hour when he needed him. And when Jesus had been crucified... And he died. And the disciples that all ran and hid. Who went and claimed the body? Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, two of them who secretly believed, but for fear of the Jews. I'm glad they got their strength and their courage on the day they did to care for our Lord and to give him the burial (laughs) that scripture had foretold. So at some point he comes to the light. He comes out of the darkness and he casts it all off and it costs him. He was born again. And we have more to go, and Christ gives him more, and we'll look at that in the upcoming weeks. We have the whole uh, thing of the serpent on the cross, you know, in the Old Testament, and that whole symbology. We have a lot more of this discourse. This is the first of seven discourses in the Gospel of John where Jesus speaks. But I think it's from the point where he finally had to swallow his pride. He had to be like Paul and say, I count it all but dumb. And he had to humble himself and be born again. Same place for you and I. And We have to come to the light. We have to realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we can't save ourselves, we can't earn it, we can't do it ourselves. You can't pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. You can't do it. The Jews thought that Abraham was guarding the gates of hell to make sure that no Jew got in there. Like, hey, no, all Jews get into heaven. It's not your birth line in this world. They're going to be shocked by the time we get done with John chapter 3. He tells Nicodemus, he's come to save the whole world, not just the Jewish nation. Because I've come to save the world. Oh, I'm so thankful that a Gentile in Indiana would have salvation available to him because of what Christ has done for me, and he's done it for you too. So if you're here this morning and you've never have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, swallow your pride. Come out of the darkness into the light. See that Jesus is who he says he is. Yes, he did miracles, but he backs it up with the doctrine. He proves from the Old Testament that he is who he says he is. I was trying to listen to a teacher I heard this week said, the thing that made him this unique was not the miracles, it was the forerunner. And not just John the Baptist, it was all the scripture that says, here he is and this is what he'll do, he'll teach in parables, he'll come from Nazareth, he'll come from here, he'll you know, all those different things, 300 different prophecies that he fulfills showing that he is the one, that he's Messiah. And one of his miracles, his miracles were just because of his goodness, because he can't see people hurting And to show that here's what it's like when you're around the king, you don't want for food, you're not sick, you're healthy, you have all these things I touch and heal you, it's a place of plenty. This is a little foretaste of the kingdom. So please don't stay into the dark. Come out into the light, repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ as your savior. You'll never regret it. You'll never regret it. He'll give you eyes to see. He'll give you ears to hear. The scripture that, that you might struggle with all of a sudden becomes a letter written to you, a love letter written from the Spirit, and it might be difficult, it might take some work and study, that's fine. But you now have the Spirit to guide you through all truth and, and to reveal uh, revelation to you and to open up the text and to teach you and to guide you when you're living your life, to be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path and to help you uh, in the things that you were doing. And boy, and then you have everlasting life, Salvation. Salvation, to be with the one who will come and establish this world. We can live with him forever. Man, what a deal. What a deal. He does it all. He's paid it all. He does all the work. Let's repent and trust in him. If you haven't done so, I encourage you to do it today. If you have, let's just rejoice in that fact that salvation was free and it was available. That we have a savior who loved us enough that he came down willingly would die for us while we were yet enemies. Christ died for us. Hallelujah, what a savior. And now we should the least we should do is live for him.